Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. Good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We're glad that to have you this morning. We'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City and be a part of what God's up to here. So, so as well, continue working our way through the book of Philippians together this morning. Uh, but if you're new or you've been gone for a little while, don't worry. I'll catch you back up on the story and we'll dive in together. So like we've talked about, Philippians is, is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he planted 10 years prior in the city of Philippi. It was the very first church ever planted on the European continent. And, and Paul, this letter that he writes to this church, is, it's full of encouragement. It's, it just has this attitude. It's just like very uplifting in a lot of ways. And the reality is, is that the reason why that's the case is because in a lot of ways this church has been characterized from the very beginning as a, as a church that really loves God and wants others to know him. One characterized by a sacrificial generosity with their finances. One that's been faithful to the gospel and the word of God. And, and honestly, one that just like appreciates Paul, has a gratitude for him, like just, just like is thankful for him as a leader and someone who helped start their church. And in fact, the reason why Paul's writing them this letter now is because they they sent one of their own leaders uh, on this long, arduous journey to go check on Paul because they heard he was in prison, and so they wanted to send somebody so they could go see what he needed and be able to take care of any needs that he might have. And, and so whenever Paul thinks about them, he's encouraged. He's full of joy and thankfulness. Like He's just like, man, these guys are great. I'm so thankful for what's going on here. And yet, as you read the letter, one of the things that you find is that even in the midst of all the reasons why Paul has to be thankful for what God's up to in this church and the ways that where they're at spiritually, what you see throughout the letter is that he longs that they would continue to keep growing up in their faith. He, he wants the good news of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus to continue to keep shaping their attitudes and their actions and their perspectives. He has this attitude throughout the whole letter that, that not only has he not arrived, but that they haven't either. Neither have we. And so instead of just patting him on the back and giving him an attaboy, what Paul does throughout the letter is that he urges them to keep pressing into the often uncomfortable process of growing up spiritually and as individuals and as community because what he knows is that God's not done yet. He's not done transforming them yet. And so at the end of chapter one, we saw the, the growth that Paul is urging us towards as God's people is to be characterized by living in such a way that reveals, that shows the, the surpassing value and worth of the gospel and, and the good news of all that Jesus has done to cause us to belong to him and to make us citizens of his kingdom. And, and the thing that we saw that tied together all the instructions Paul gave about what it looked like to live that way, the, the thing that bound everything up together was this idea of unity. And see, so this idea of unity, Paul understands that unity is not easy. You can get exclusivity, uniformity, yeah, you can get either of those things. Not too, not too difficult to get either one of those things. But true unity, which is, he describes as oneness in the midst of real differences. Not the exclusion of differences, not the overlooking of differences, but oneness in the midst of real differences. That is a lot harder. In fact, we saw how Paul laid out for us last week that the only way you get that kind of a unity, the only way that you become characterized as a community by oneness in the midst of your differences is if we we approach one another with the kind of radical humility that God himself approached us with in Christ. 
And we saw last week as Paul painted this breathtaking picture of Jesus and what his attitude looked like, that although he was God, that he didn't consider his identity and status as God something to be held on to, something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, we saw he chooses to sacrificially prioritize our good ahead of his own, that, that he humbled himself, that he gives up his glory so that you and I, who have none of our own, might be able to share in it with him. It's this incredible picture that we see in, in, in Philippians chapter 2. And we talked about last week how when that reality sinks deeply into your heart, when the reality of all that Jesus has done for you and his humility towards you, when that sinks deeply into your heart, what happens is that it is the one thing that can actually uproot and overcome the desire of selfish ambition and of the hunger we have for significance and glory, those desires that drive each and every one of us. And so the gospel is the one thing that actually has the power to uproot those and overcome come those things and, and fill them in so that we might live new lives that are characterized by the kind of unity producing humility that, that we see in Jesus. And well, but this morning, what we're going to see is that this, the incredible example we saw Paul laying out for us of, of Jesus' life and his, his humility for us that we saw laying out last week, it wasn't just characterized by an others-focused humility. The other thing that we saw throughout that passage is that it was also characterized by this God-focused obedience, that Christ's example is one of both humility and also of obedience. We saw in chapter 2, verse 8 last week, how Jesus became the, uh, took the form of an obedient servant, one that he says in verse 8, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that leads us to our passage this morning because what we're going to see Paul showing us this morning is that it's not just the others-focused humility of Christ that he's going to call us to, to imitate and to reflect, but it's also, the, it's also the glad obedience with which he did it. It's the glad obedience that, that he uh, obeyed with, right? And and he's calling us to imitate that as we work out the implications of our salvation in the midst of our everyday lives. And, and so again, Paul, is, this morning, is going to help us to see that it's not just the humility of Jesus that he's calling us to reflect, but also the glad obedience of Jesus in our lives as we seek to live out and apply the gospel into our lives. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll dive into chapter 2 this morning. So. God, thanks so much for our time together in your word, and thanks so much just that you would have it for us. And God, I just feel like my brain just, I just feel like my thoughts are scattered in this moment, and I just need you to focus my attention on, on your word and our time together. I need you to do that in me, and pray as well, God, just, um, just for us as a people this morning, that you'd be gracious to give us, um, God, just to give us a humble hearts that can be able to hear and respond rightly to your word, and God, there's just so much uh, practical, real stuff in our lives that you addressed this morning. And so we just ask, God, that you'd help us not to see this as good news or as information for someone else, but that, we'd help you, us, that you'd help us to see it as something you are doing in us. And so we need your help with all of that, God, and we pray that you would. So for our good and your glory, amen. All right, so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, uh, beginning in verse 12, reads this way. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything 
without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast about on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, then I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now there is a lot going on in our passage this morning. And right off the bat, Paul starts with this phrase that that can often feel very controversial, disturbing. At the end of verse 12, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it can be easy to read that and just be like, all right, like, hold on a minute here. Like, uh, we've just been talking all the time about our salvations by grace and what is going on here. Is this Paul saying that we need to work for our salvation? But it's so important you, you just read carefully what Paul is talking about here. He, he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. You see, the reality is that we could never work for our salvation. We could never obey enough. First, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes about how even our faith and our belief in God is a gift that he grants to us. And just a few weeks, we'll get to chapter 3, where Paul talks about how he was one of the, the most obedient people ever. And all of it was worthless and garbage apart from faith in Jesus. That the only righteousness, the only right standing with God that he has, it comes entirely only because of his faith in Christ. And that word salvation itself, it literally just means rescue. You don't rescue yourself. That's not how rescue works, right? And so by the very words that are being used, Paul's not talking about earning something here or working for something. Instead, that, that verb that's translated for our passage is work out. It has the sense of bringing something to completion or bringing it to, to fullness, bringing it fully to bear in our lives. And you see, when, when it comes to the God's work in our lives and his saving and transforming work in us, the Bible talks about the way what God does in us is in two really distinct and yet deeply interconnected ways. See, the first that we see throughout Scripture is that God does something for us to change our position. God something, does something for us to change our position. The fancy theological word for that is the idea of justification. Last week we saw this breathtaking picture of of Jesus and all he did for us, how he gave up his glory and he humbled himself by becoming not just a human but a servant of humans, one who was obedient even unto death and we so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and made new and able to be adopted and members of God's family and share with him in his glory. And and scriptures talks about how when we put our faith in Christ's humble obedience on our behalf, then what happens is, is that God changes the banner over us. We go from being enemies of God to being dearly loved, forgiven, adopted members of his family. And we have a new status and a new name and this whole new identity that God gives us because of the work that he's done for us in Christ. But but spoiler alert, um, even though you have a new identity and new status and new name because of all that God has done for you, you are still a messed up sinner. Like, it's not like your life just mad. It's not like you like, you know, bibbidi-bibbidi-bop, right? And you're just like, wow, I got a new life and everything's totally different now, right? Like, that's not how that works. You see, and so God doesn't just do a work for us in Christ to change our position. He also begins to do a work in us to change us in actuality, to change our very lives. You see, and so that our lives are increasingly brought into line with this new identity and status that we have from him because of what he's done for us. 
And the Bible calls that process sanctification. And, and that's what Paul's talking about in verse 12. He's talking about this idea of working out your salvation, right? Verse 12, he begins, therefore, right? Because, because of all that Jesus has done to change you positionally, because of his humble obedience on your behalf, his life given for you on your behalf, because that is true, because you have been justified, made right with him, he says, work out that reality into your life. Apply that new identity into every area of your thinking and feeling and relating. Allow it to change your attitudes and your actions and your perspectives and the way in which you approach the world around you, right? In other words, what he's saying is is that I want the gospel to impact and change everything about you. As a church, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the idea of growing in the gospel. We talk about that every week when we're here. It's central to our vision, right? Because the reality is that the gospel is not like the cornerstone that everything in our faith gets built around. It's actually like the hub at the center of the wheel. And every part of our lives must connect to it and be transformed by it. That's the only way you grow. That's how you actually grow up is when the person and the work of Jesus is connected. When all that, when that reality is connected with every part of our lives. What Paul is saying functionally, he says, I want the gospel to transform your obedience. I want want you to work out the implications of all that Jesus has done for you. And he says what that looks like is growing in obedience to who God has called you to be and how he's called you to live as his people. You see, sanctification looks like increasing obedience. That's what it looks like in our lives. Increasingly, our lives are brought into line with God's word and his will and his ways. And that is hard. It's not easy. Unlike our justification, which comes entirely by faith, our, the, the sanctifying work that God is doing in us it is difficult and slow and arduous and nonlinear, and it's, it's challenging. It requires intentional effort. But it's so important that you see here that Paul doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't just say, hey, work it out on your own. He goes on in verse 13, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Here's the deal, right? When God saves you, what he does is he also puts in you new desires. He puts a new will in you, a new longing, new desires in you, where once you had a desire just to please yourself and to fulfill your own desires, more and more what happens is that you desire to please God and fulfill his purposes in you and in the world. You just start wanting that more and more and more, right? That's why when you become a Christian, what happens is that the sinful patterns of your life that often felt so satisfying or fulfilling before, they just feel empty. They don't, they don't satisfy, they don't please in the same ways they used to, because they, they leave a bad taste in your mouth, right? A while back, my, my dad, he, has, he was having some issues with high blood pressure, and so his doctor's like, you need to eat less salt slash none salt. Like, you gotta, you gotta, like, that's one of the ways you got to significantly reduce, you got to change your diet, right? And this is just, this is totally free, this is not in the Bible, but unsalted peanuts are a waste of your life, right? Like, <laughs> like if you got to remove salt from your diet, listen, I get it, don't eat peanuts without salt. There's just, this is joyless, fruitless, like don't do that, right? right? That was free, not in the Bible, just, I just am giving you practical advice there, right? right? But, but what happened for my dad as he ate saltless peanuts and everything else in his life, right, was what happened is that when, when he started again to eat food that you and I might describe as, I don't know, flavorful, right, in any way, shape, or form, because it actually had salt in it, right? Like 
it felt, it tasted disgusting to him, right? He's just like, this is so salty. It's just like, oh, it's just way too much, right? See, that's what happens for us when, when God gives us new desires. See, God, what he does is he ruins our hearts for sin. And the things that used to taste so good, they don't, they don't taste like that anymore, right? And what we start craving and longing isn't sin, but is righteousness, it's his ways, and that's what he does in us. He puts new desires in us, and that happens is that stokes the fire of our longing to obey him, right? But, but just having new, a new will and new desires, that's not enough. I don't know about you, my wife and I, my son Caleb as well, we love Marvel stuff, right? Everything Marvel, we've watched all the movies, done all the things, right? And uh, one, of the, one of the main characters in the whole Marvel universe is a guy named Captain America, right? It's actually a guy named Steve Rogers, and... And one of the things you know, you know about the backstory about Steve is that Steve was not always like buff Captain America. Like he used to be this scrawny, piddly dude who got, every time he tried to like enter the armed forces, he got kicked out because he's just like not physically powerful enough to accomplish anything, right? And so what happens is that Steve, he had this, he had this incredibly strong will to serve his country, but he had no actual power to do it. He had no power to actually bring it about. And what he needed was the infusion of an energy outside of himself to be able to do the very thing that he wanted to do. I see in the reality that the same is true for us. Not only do we need God to give us new desires, right, to obey him, what we need is for him to actually empower our obedience unto him. Any of you, any of you who have tried to obey on your own, you just know it doesn't work, right? Like you have such limited obedience power, right? You have such you, have, you are so unable to actually transform yourself. You need a power outside of yourself to actually do that, right? And what Paul is saying in verse 13 is that God actually gives you that power. It's not just that he gives you new desires but no ability to live it out. He gives you new power, right? He says that it's God who works in you both to will and to act, right? That, that word that's translated as works, talking about God, how God works in you, it's this English word where we get our English, it's this Greek word where we get our English word energy from. Paul is saying is that God himself self-energizes your obedience. He's the one who empowers it. He's the one who plugs it in and charges it up. Without him, nothing happens, but he is the one who gives energy to our, not just our desire to obey, but our ability to do it, to work out the implications of the gospel and of our salvation in every area of our lives. And so sanctification is something that God does in us. It's a work that he is doing in us by his spirit's power but it's also, right, it's not something he's going to do without you. It's not something he forces on you, right? You see, our role in sanctification is to press into the work that God is doing, to actively join him in it. And we do that instead of fighting, instead of opposing him by pursuing sin and feeding our lives with sin or, or just being passive and apathetic about our growth, we, we press into the work that God is doing in us and we allow him to be changing us so that the salvation that he has secured for us, that it gets worked out into every area of our lives and every nook and cranny of the way we think and feel and relate to others and the, the attitudes and actions and perspectives that we have, that it shapes us ongoingly and so that it causes is not only to reflect the humility of Christ in our relationships with each other, but to actually embody the obedience of Christ in our relationship towards God himself. But that's not what the passage ends. It doesn't just end with this call towards sanctifying obedience, right? Because it's not just the objective obedience of Christ that Paul wants us to imitate. 
He wants us to imitate the very attitude that he did it with. The very attitude he did it with. That's what he's talking about in verse 14 when he says, so do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And all of you are like, I was really hoping he was going to skip over that verse. You know, it's pretty short. Maybe we were going to skip it, right? We're not skipping it, right? It's just not going to happen because the reality is, is that in the grand scheme of things, you and I, we tend to think about grumbling and arguing as kind of like peripheral issues in our lives, right? It's like, okay, listen, I know that those are things we got to work on, that God's kind of doing some stuff in. I'm not arguing with that, right? But like, that does not seem like tier one level stuff, right? Like, that's got to be like, you know, tier three behind all kinds of other stuff that's that God's doing in us, right? But that's not the reality. Throughout, throughout Scripture, we see that God takes grumbling and arguing, complaining. He takes those things very seriously. Just read James chapter 5, verse 9. James writes it this way. He says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door, right? He's like, This is a real thing. God is absolutely opposed to this kind of a reality. And the question that we've got to ask is why, right? Why does God seem so opposed to the grumbling and complaining and arguing in, the, in our lives? Why is that? is that? Is that just because nobody wants to be around people who are grumblers and complainers, right? Is it because research shows that, that complaining and grumbling and arguing are objectively bad for your health? I read a Stanford study this week that talked about how being characterized by that, when we do that over and over again, what happens is it actually shrinks the area of your brain that controls like critical thinking and intelligent like conversations. Like, it's, it's literally bad for your brain, right? And so is that, is that why? Is that, is that why that God says don't, be, don't, don't do anything with grumbling and complaining? No. It's because the way that we speak and the attitude with which we live and obey, it reveals the attitude and it reveals what's going on in our hearts. Luke chapter 6, Jesus himself says it this way, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here's the reality. When what we speak is characterized by grumbling and complaining and arguing, what's coming out of our mouths is really just the voice of our heart's discontentment and dissatisfaction and unbelief in God's purposes and timing in our lives. That's what it is. Our grumbling is the voice of our heart's dissatisfaction and discontentment and unbelief. And we might not say this out loud, but the reality is that we live with this feeling that we are owed something better than what we have. That, that for some reason we deserve better, whether that's from God or from people. We think God owes us a better situation in life or, or at least an easier path, right? We, we've done enough good things, right? We're not that bad, right? We think people owe us better service or a higher priority in their lives, and we feel entitled. One pastor helps me writes it this way. He says, desires become expectations, expectations become rights, and instead of bringing our disappointment to God and allowing his words to steady us, we let unmet desires fester into discontentment and we grumble. He says we are unwilling to trust that God might be crafting in our disappointment something for our good and we only have eyes for the painful now. And I don't know about you, I read that this week and I was just like, ow, that hurts because it's true. That is what's happening in my heart so often. 
But it's not just me. That's what characterized the people that Paul's quoting verse 15 about. That verse, that quote in verse 15, it's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, and it's describing a people who lived and acted like that. Uh, spoiler alert, that's not the world. That's the Israelites in the desert. It's God's very own people who he described as a crooked and wayward generation. You see, even though God had miraculously rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, they were endlessly characterized by grumbling and arguing. The road's not long enough. Our leaders aren't impressive enough. The food's too plain. The enemies are too big, right? On and on and on and on it goes with them. To the point that their grumbling and arguing with God kept that entire generation of people out of the promised land. The reality is, is when we think about it, is that we are a whole lot more like them than we are unlike them. We're a whole lot more like that. You may not think of yourself as a negative person, but the reality is research shows that between 30 and 40% of our conversations start with complaint or criticism, and that most people complain an average of once a minute during a typical conversation. And you're like, nah. Yeah, actually, that's, uh, that does sound about right. Yep, now that I think about it, 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 does seem, it does seem about that way. We grumble and complain about all kinds of things. The weather, our house, the politics around us, our kids, everything happening in the world, our lives. Maybe any of you, you woke up yesterday to just some beautiful spring moisture on the ground, right? And you didn't think about it like that, did you, right? No, no, you didn't. You thought about it as God spiting you, right, for living in the Midwest, right? You see, we grumble and complain about all kinds of things. This week, uh, with my own son, it's been an area of just honestly just challenge. Started this week, and I was just at the beginning of the week, I was just like, ah, oh, Jesus, this kid is driving me crazy, right? Like, everything is just like a whine or a grumble or a complaint about whatever's going on. And, and so I just start the week frustrated about that, right? And so as I'm studying this week, and I'm like, oh, darn it, God, like, you just had to bring this one up this week, didn't you, right? Like, and God's, what he's doing as I'm studying is he's showing, he's like, hey, uh, I hate to break it to you, uh, but you do the same thing, right? And you might not be melting down on the floor, right? But what you are doing, you're, you're grumbling, you're complaining, it's just a little more sophisticated, right? And you kind of mask it in like, oh, like, but it's really just complaining, and it's really just a, a begrudging, un, a discontentment that often characterizes the way that I think about my own life or situations or people far more than I want it to. And so this week, as I remember getting home on Wednesday night from a day of study on, on those passages, I was prepping to pre, preach, and I, where I read stories with my kids at night, and we just kind of like talk about our day and pray. And I was just telling them, I was just like, you know, we've been having a bunch of conversations this week about grumbling and complaining and how like, we don't want to be characterized by that. And I just need to like, tell you that like, God's been challenging my heart with that because I thought that was something that just you guys were doing, but it's actually something that I'm doing. And I was realizing this week in my study how much I need God's power to keep transforming my own heart, how I need him to keep shaping my perspectives, how I need him to keep renewing the way that I look at situations and people. See, the reality is is that pressing into a life of sanctifying obedience unto God is hard. It just is. It's hard. And it's often uncomfortable. It requires discipline and sacrifice. Often it means foregoing things we feel like would really be great. 
And yet that shouldn't be a surprise to us because Jesus' humble obedience led him to the cross and to the ultimate sacrifice. And yet what we saw last week and throughout the New Testament is that his obedience was not a begrudging obligation, but it was a glad submission. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. You see, Paul himself models that same kind of an attitude for the Philippians. In verse 17, he says to them this, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service that comes from your faith, then I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Paul's literally in prison chained to a guard and he is facing the very real possibility of death and what characterizes the way that he looks at the life and obedience that led him to that very moment what characterizes the way that he looks at that is is rejoicing even on my best day that's not how i feel He says that if this life has just been an offering to God poured out completely so that your faith might become a reality and that it might lead you to lives of worship and service unto God, then all of it was worth it. Every part. When our obedience looks like that, when it's not a dutiful drudgery, but it is a glad and joyful obedience, even in the midst of difficulties and disappointments we face as we follow Jesus, what happens is we shine. Paul says, we shine like stars in the world. My daughter Emma loves everything space right now. You ask her what she wants to be, she'll tell you she wants to be an astronaut, right? She just got a telescope for her, for her birthday from her grandma, and... And uh, we set that thing. I remember the first night we set it up, I have never heard so many oohs and ahs and wows in such a short period of time as we pointed that lens at stars and constellations and galaxies. She was captivated by the beauty that she saw. They were far brighter than she imagined they would be. There were far more than she could possibly have understood. And she was captivated by them. What Paul is saying is we work out the implications of the gospel in our lives so that it becomes more clear the transforming power of Jesus in us. What happens is that we will live with a kind of luminous joy free of grumbling and complaining and arguing that causes us to stand out in a world as, that is full of darkness, as beautiful lights that shine for Christ. One pastor sums it up this way. He says, grumbling is the way of the flesh, the way of fear, the way of our sinful nature, the way of darkness. Grumbling only adds to the darkness because it obscures the light of God's sovereign goodness and grace. Grumbling adds to the darkness because it just obscures the light of God's sovereign goodness and grace. He says each of us, they can think of a, we can think of a grumbler in our family or our neighborhood or our workplace. They are toxin emitters. Like a black pen leaking into the pocket of a white shirt, they tend to soil every environment they enter. But Christians are being transformed to shine. He says you are bleach, not ink. Light, not darkness. And when we live with the power of the gospel shaping and transforming us, a people full of joyful gratitude, not just grumbling and arguing. We shine as lights, I need you to see this, that aren't just beautiful, but are critically important. 
You see, before we had GPS, right, the way you figured out where you were in the world or where you were going was by looking at the stars. They weren't just beautiful. They were important to lead the way home. Paul says that you will shine like stars in the sky, verse 16, as you hold firmly to the word of life. That word that's translated as holding firmly to the word of life, it can also mean to hold out or to hold off, to offer the word of life. It's one of those words that it's just really difficult to know which version that the translations are using or which one is the best fit. But the reality is, is that it doesn't really matter because they're both deeply interconnected. You see, the way that you hold on, one of the primary ways you hold on to the word of life is by holding out the word of life to others. One of the best ways to hold on to your faith and to cherish the gospel is to offer it to others, to show it to others. Let them see it as beautiful and good, to proclaim it as such. And Paul says the way you do both of those things is by living a life of joyful gratitude, not of grumbling and arguing. It's one of the primary ways you do it and when we're characterized by just complaining about everything the same way everybody else around us does, what we reveal is the same attitude of selfishness and entitlement. And yet that is not what should characterize the people of God. Because all that we have and everything that we have been given, the very identity and status as children of God is not something we could ever have earned or should ever be deserving of. It has been a gracious gift to us. And so our lives should be characterized by the reality that the only thing we are owed is punishment for our sin, and yet everything we have is such an abundant, gracious gift from God. What happens is when that perspective shapes your reality, you start to live differently. And you start to become characterized not by grumbling and complaining, but by a joyful, gospel-focused gratitude. It shapes you. But it's not just good news. It's not just a light to people that live in the world around us. Again, that quote that Paul references is talking about just this religious people of God that are just obeying out of duty and drudgery, but they don't actually love him. You see, religious people, they obey out of duty and obligation, and you all know religious people. They're not bright, shining stars, right? Nobody wants to be like that. Nobody's like, wow, that's so beautiful, right? No, those are things that we turn away from. They're, 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 they're difficult, right? Religious people are, religious, religion motivates us with fear and pride. And all that does is produce all kinds of grumbling and arguing and complaining, whether that's about people or God or everything in between. But the gospel is different. The gospel motivates us with therefores. Verse 12, therefore, because of Jesus. Because you have already been given a status and identity that you could never have earned and would mess up if you could. Because you have been given a gift of salvation that is so precious and beautiful. That's the motivations you have to live a new life for it. Not to get it, but because you've already been given something you could not get if you tried. And so Jesus and Paul we see these two incredible examples in Philippians 2 of, of lives that are lived, characterized by this sanctified, glad obedience. As we close, I just want to come back to verse 13 for a moment. And this reminder that it's God's power that's at work within us to bring those kinds of things about. Because I came across a, a quote this week that just really summed up, I think, what happens in our hearts oftentimes. Mark Twain, he, he said it this way. He says, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. 
Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. The thing most annoying about a good example is how unable we are to accomplish the same things in our own lives. Right? We feel that often, right? We look at the examples of Christ or Paul, even just people you respect or admire. It doesn't even have to be about spiritual things. And what happens is sometimes those examples become crushing weights. Because they're examples you just, you just don't live up to. As much as you admire. One commentator puts it this way. He says, admiration for a great person can inspire us, but it cannot enable us. Unless that person can enter into your life and share their skills with you, you cannot attain their heights or accomplishments. It takes more than an example on the outside. It takes power on the inside. And obeying God requires more than imitation. It requires the indwelling incarnation of his very spirit. Church, and that's the good news that Paul reminds you of this morning. That God not only calls you to a glad obedience, he empowers the obedience he calls you to. You see, without that, without that, without verse 13 and this reminder that it's God who works in you to will and to act, then Paul's example to you and Jesus' example to you are just crushing burdens that you never live up to but because it's his power in you. The same power that empowered Jesus, the same spirit that empowered him to live the way he did and Paul the way to live that he did, that same spirit lives within you if you have by faith put your trust in him. And so you have the same power to do it. A pe- to be a people that we could never be without God's saving grace and to be a people we could never fully become without his indwelling power. That's the good news of the gospel for you. And that's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. Reminding ourselves of Jesus' body, his blood broken and shed, not just so that you might be saved, not just so that you might be justified and made righteous, but so that you might be cleansed so that his power might live in you. That you might actually have the power to be the person he calls you to be. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Faith alone in the person and the work of Jesus is what does that. And so if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, I just want to encourage you. I want you to know how welcome you are here in this community. But I want you to hold off on taking communion because God is not after empty religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that rests in him completely. And that in joy for all that he has done gives yourself back wholeheartedly unto him. You can't earn it. You cannot merit what he has done for you. You get to respond to it by joining the thing, by joining him in the work he's doing in you. And so if that's where you're at this morning, if you are glad to join in the work that Jesus is doing in you by faith, then go back and take communion. Do it with joy and celebrating all that he's done for you. And as we do, I just want to encourage you guys, all of us, talk with God. It is so easy for us to minimize our grumbling and arguing and complaining, to shove it off to the side as this tertiary thing in our lives when the reality is is that God takes it seriously. We just tend to think, well, just everybody does it. It's just kind of the way. And Paul is saying, yes, that's the point. 
and you don't stand out at all. And the gospel needs to keep shaping your attitudes and, atti- and, and perspectives and actions so that the new identity and status you have as a beloved, forgiven member of God's family gets worked out into the way that you actually think and live and talk. You need it to keep happening. But also, I want to encourage you, talk with God as well. You see, because the reality is, is that so often we try to change based on our own power. We just try to work really hard to be better people, right? And I could give you all kinds of tips and tricks and strategies to try to grumble less and argue more. And that's not bad or wrong or whatever it is, but here's the reality. What you actually need is God's power giving you a new heart in you. That's the one thing that will actually change that about you. You need him to remind you of the goodness of the gospel and that what you really deserve is punishment for your sin and yet what, he's been, what you've been given is life and grace. And that fills you with gratitude for him and a life in the midst of discouragement and disappointment that is full of joy, not of grumbling. Only the gospel produces that life in you. Only the gospel can do that. Ask him to empower you to live in his power for you. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for our time in your word this morning. God, we come to you humbly just to admit, I know my own heart this week. God, you were just gracious to convict me of my own, the ways that I'm characterized by grumbling and complaining and arguing. God, I want to shine as a light for you in the world. And I want my gratitude and joy that comes from the gospel to get worked into every area of my life so that what comes out of me and what comes out of us as a community is a joyful gratitude for you. Help us to be a people to whom the gospel is joyfully good news so that we might live free of grumbling and arguing for your glory, we pray. Amen.